0: Welcome to the Kickstart podcast, where we highlight the stories of how professionals kickstarted and navigated their successful careers. My name is Preston. And on this episode, we have the pleasure of hosting someone who has an impressive career from initially starting as a paralegal to then becoming a product manager, solutions architect, before then deciding to found his own technology company. Today, he's the co founder and CEO of Portable that is on a mission to create a universal financial
1: identity for all. Nate, thank you so much for being on the show. Preston, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's uh, a joy to be here. Not my first time doing a podcast. Shout out to the Wharton FinTech podcast, but it's my first time doing it solo. So uh, thanks for giving me some training wheels, and I'm excited to spend the next hour with you. Perfect. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll go great. Um, so I guess for those that don't know who you are, Nate, would you mind sharing a, a high level summary of your background? Sure. So you captured some interesting, salient bits from my work history, but you know, snap to the present. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Portable. As you mentioned, we're building tools to allow financial institutions and apps and service providers across Web 2 and Web 3 to validate, verify, and issue transferable identities for their customers. Why? Well, it starts out from the fact that despite finance being easier and simpler, you can't take your data with you very easily, and you have very little agency over it, which means you have very little control over it which stems everything from privacy to financial access. So this problem we're solving is that consumer-first financial identity should be persistent, transferable, and move with you. I think everyone's really focused on what the future of open finance and open banking looks like. And you know we think that it can only succeed if we shake off this one-to-one relationship between accounts and verifications. So we're setting out to allow people to have a kind of a persistent ID they can take with them to open accounts, update accounts and take with them sort of in the way we have driver's licenses and passports today. It's a tall order, it's complex, we love the problem, but how I got to this was kind of in a weird roundabout sort of a creative way. So, you know, let me give you a a little bit of info how I got there. It's a little circuitous, but the the pieces do come together, I promise. So like you mentioned, I started out as a paralegal. Uh, My background is actually in anthropology and linguistics, which I think is a very long dotted line (laughs) between that and working at the intersection of identity and privacy and security and uh, finance. Um, But I realized fairly quickly uh, when I was working on a project to reconcile different databases for some evidentiary task I was doing, and I realized that it's really hard to say that like this Preston Park and this Park comma Preston and this Park comma P across different structured and unstructured data sources is actually very difficult to figure out. Uh, later did I realize this process is called entity resolution, but I realized that, wait a minute, like this is hard to do for me just as an individual, like wheedling over stuff in a back office somewhere. This problem probably touches everything everywhere. Um, and a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of the light bulb went off for me. And the reason why, actually stems from like even, you know, growing up. Uh, I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut, which, you know, despite, you know, the, the jokes anyone can make about Connecticut, um, was actually a deeply diverse um, community filled with lots of first, second, third, multi-generational families from Central and South America, the Caribbean, West Africa, um, and, you know, 30 other places. The point is that, you know, growing up, a lot of what I saw was kind of this like second or third hand, um, let me think about how to describe this, kind of observations around you know, the different friends and families who were in my like, social network having different types of anxieties around going to branches to do banking and like opening up accounts and sending money home and things like that. And those things didn't re- truly register with me when I was like you know, 10 or 15 years old, It only dawned on me later that, wait a minute, identity and trust is a huge part of being able to bank securely. And so that kind of stuck with me. And then realizing, you know, what I saw while as a paralegal, kind of, I put some pieces together and said, okay, if identity is this hard to keep straight, no wonder lots of people struggle or have anxieties around banking because there's not clear mechanisms of consistent trust there. And so that was kind of my jumping off point to say, okay, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I just want to build in this space. I want to understand the intersection of identity and finance and security more, because I think there's something there. I don't know what it is. This is like 2011 at the time. Um, but, you know, let's, let's pursue this and keep going. And so I spent the rest of my career up through going back for business school poking at different areas where identity and finance intersect. And so that's where we get to the point where I was a product manager and a solutions architect across a lot of different places, touching upon anti-money laundering, know your customer, know your business, different types of fraud and different types of security and privacy issues, both here and in the EU. So kind of learning and, uh, breaking things along the way with respect to Dodd-Frank, GDPR, and other, uh, other regs. Um, and then it was in 2020 that I said, okay, you know, I've been doing this for a while. You know, people still have to kind of throw information into a black hole in order to gain access to a product or a service and stitch that into their financial lives. We've been doing this for, you know, 20 plus years since the Patriot Act, but it all seems kind of nuts. Um, it hasn't actually gotten much fairer or more transparent or more secure despite huge advancements to KYC tools, to encrypted data storage, to sharding, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, okay, what what can we do here? What if we turned everything upside down? What if we allowed people to own their data and have kind of a a verified or canonical representation that is actually like their thing that they can hold on to rather than kind of forfeit canonicalization to institutions? So that was really the core idea. It was more of a a motivation and kind of something that had burrowed into the the back of my skull than it was like a fully fleshed out product idea at the time. Um, So that's kind of the inspiration. And then I took that to Wharton where, you know, I incubated that in my two years at Wharton. Um, Regrettably, I did not do much of my homework and instead really tried to get this thing sorted out. Um, And we popped out, you know, the other side with a team and like a cohesive product idea and a huge amount of knowledge around what this discipline called self-sovereign identity. And that's kind of the the jumping off point for saying, okay, we're going to we're going to take this full time. We're going to turn this into an actual living, breathing company and change the way, you know, identity is done in financial services. So that's kind of the long dotted line from, you know, undergrad anthropology, linguistics, thinking about law school to understanding that data is really messy and complicated to understanding it's kind of modern, practical, like very systemic ramifications on financial access. Um, So I'll pause there um, and kind of throw it back to you to see where you want to go with things.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, there's so many thoughts going through my mind, aside from like the main problem that you and your company are addressing. Uh, But we'll we'll get back to that in, in a bit. What I think is fascinating is that there are so many different ways to become a founder today in technology. And there's so many different tracks that you can follow and, and to go from linguistics to then uh, paralegal to then break into tech. I think that's really, really fascinating. And you really kind of paint your thought process really well on why you jumped away from legal into technology. Now, my question though, is, how did you get into a product role? Um, and then, why didn't you stay in just a product role throughout? I know that you kind of uh, went back and forth from product to even solutions architect. Uh, you even worked at a lot of different types of companies from consulting more uh, based companies to more just in-house tech companies. And so would you just be able to kind of paint just a real quick, I'm just kind of understanding like uh,
1: why you made the decisions that you did? Sure. I think, you know, I can open this one up by, you know, I guess, let me give two shout outs first to two people who played an important role in my early career. Um, and then I can kind of talk a little bit about, you know, why I went back and forth between solutions, architecture, and product, and how did I stitch those pieces together? So I do want to give two shout outs um, to two of my former colleagues and mentors back from when I worked at Ativio, which was an enterprise search company based in uh, Boston, Mass. They later got acquired by ServiceNow. Um, my first mentor, Will, was one of the founders. Um, he's now at ServiceNow. And my original boss at Ativia, Leonard Walstad, who I think is now—I think he was a green plum—and I think now he's an astronomer. Um, anyway, they—they they did a great amount. They—they they were fantastic mentors. Uh, I'll say that plainly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, that was at a point where I was coming out of my first product role uh, at Relationship Science, working in uh, the finance and nonprofit kind of data spheres, and you know they. They just kind of let me loose talking with customers. I think the important thing about that stage of my career is Ativio didn't really have a formal product function the way it was built. It was very engineering first, and the solutions team did a lot of the kind of legwork and strategic planning around working with customers and leads, soliciting feedback, and rolling that into requirements that were either, you know, slated for now or slated for later. So it was kind of like a synthetic product management function along with the solutions architecture function. Um, But that I love that at that point, Um, I will say it was certainly overwhelming at the time. Um, I had to learn a lot of tech real fast, but Will and Leonard were, were instrumental into kind of letting me explore organically how technical I wanted to get versus how customer facing I wanted to get. And so I think that was a very important uh, milestone for me because it allowed me kind of to do the best of both worlds. A lot of customer facing work, learning how to sell, how to do, you know, implement both pre sales and some implementation stuff, as well as, you know, work with, you know, in the office engineers and distributed engineering teams to either ship customer specific things or things we decided that would benefit the platform overall. Mm -hmm. So that kind of experience for me was very, very unique because it is not your typical solutions architect role. And it is kind of obviously not a product management role, but it had lots of elements of both. And I loved that. Um, so that was kind of milestone one for me and very, very, very pivotal. I think to sum that one up, it was the realization that I liked building in a fast-paced environment, you know, working with customers to kind of tease out their problems and like, truly simplify the complex with something that I really enjoyed. And, you know, those are the kinds of things that I sought out in all of my subsequent experiences, which is why I ended up, you know, at Sense and then later coming back to Arachnus very, very early on in its life cycle to help build out, you know, all the things we built out. So I'll pause there and see what, what jumped out at you and what follow-ups you might have.
0: Yeah. So you were almost lucky to, in your first couple roles within tech to have a lot more exposure just beyond the original scope of what a solutions architect would do, what a traditional product manager would do, allowing you to build a broad range of skills that now in retrospect, I'm sure you can confidently say, uh, has built a foundation that um, you can jump off and I'm sure helped accelerate uh, and assisted you when it comes to kind of building your own product and company,
1: is that true? Yeah, that sounds right. I think one thing that's that's worth kind of pulling out for the listeners is that does, you know, on one hand I describe it in a way where, you know, I kind of, you know, it was a kid and candy store. I kind of got everything that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, but also jokingly, I should mention, I'm kind of a glutton for punishment too. Like steep learning curves, a lot of just being like thrown in the deep end with stuff. You know, I think what was I, you know, it was 25, 26. And I'm like, try in a giant conference table with like a, you know, a deputy CIO of like a top 50 bank, sweating it out. Um, you know, one memory sticks in my mind where I'm doing a live demo with like a dozen people around a conference table in a windowless office in some part of the U.S. And if you looked at it, you know, on one hand it looks like some Renaissance painting. On the other hand, you know, what 26 year old is put in that position to try and to try and do that? So. To say that I had a lot of fun with it would be true, but it was also kind of uh, terrifying in some respects. And so there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of times where I was just like deeply uncomfortable and, you know, relying on my skills, the backup support of my mentors, the rest Mm -hmm. of the team. But I think those things are important to call out because I think in a journey, in a founder's journey, you're going to be alone and uncertain and uncomfortable a lot like quite a lot. Um, and I'm grateful to have been thrown into some weird situations where I had to kind of work through it or at least kind of be inoculated to it early on in my career. So, the, so when I got to the realization that I wanted to take the leap kind of going into business school and afterwards, it didn't seem so bad. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I completely agree. I think in our industry or people in general who hear stories about founders, it's very easy just to focus on the positives, the benefits, or just sometimes uh, live in a world where you just think it's easy. But every single day, as you put it really well, Nate, you're constantly battling with uncertainty, um, we're putting out fires. Uh, and challenging yourself in very uncomfortable situations. And I think the fact that you were able to experience these things multiple times before certainly helped you probably develop uh, a thicker skin, but also give you uh, more tools versus someone who's never experienced those um, for when you actually face them again as a founder. So I think that's really, really cool. Um, And because... I'm someone who particularly focuses a lot in recruiting. I'm curious, just real quick, throughout your career, the jobs that you got, were a lot of them uh, through referrals? Like, did you cold apply to them? Did you use headhunters? I'm just kind of curious for someone who's able to kind of navigate their career uh, through several companies.
1: Yeah, so great question. And I think it's a lot of it is kind of being in the right place at the right time. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So, you know, my first job that kind of, you know, inspired me to make the jump from being a paralegal was something my, my friend had sent me actually on a, on a job board that we were both part of. Um, they were looking for just a bunch of like kind of motivated, you know, smart people to try and solve some problems. It was like a very, you know, relationship science at the time spun off of um, Capital IQ was just looking for some like smart people to try and figure out problems. Like The product vision was getting sorted out. The tech stack was getting sorted out. The Mm -hmm. operational stack was getting sorted out. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but it just seemed like an interesting opportunity because of the fact it worked with large-scale data sets and identities and reconciliation and things like that. So that was, quite frankly, just dumb luck. Um, But, you know, dumb luck kind of snowballs (laughs) in some respects. Um, So the Ativio job... um, Actually, I have to sh- uh, thank one of my childhood friends for that one. Um, he had started at Ativio the year before I did, after doing his CS degree at UConn, and he basically like twisted my arm to join, even though I he knew I would be like way thrown in the deep end because I didn't have a CS background. Now I think it's nice. It's it's kind of a privilege actually when people get a chance to go work with their best friends. Um, but it was it was it was a sufficiently good reason for me at the time, after having done four years at relationship science. After that, though, um, it was kind of open season, and you know I realized that I put in enough time after that to, to start hunting down my own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know that's how Sea uh, Sense happened, and then similarly that's how Arachnids happened. Um, yeah, I think. I think after the first couple of of jobs, you kind of get things start to crystallize in a way where you now know exactly what to look for and how to look for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time, it was a lot of just right place, right time, Mm -hmm. running some experiments, seeing if they worked. And then when things click, they click. And then you just you you stick with it.
0: For sure. And then I guess uh, one more thing that I would like to address, actually two more things. The first of all, uh, what I found very fascinating is that a lot of people kind of go through a career, they work in the professional world, five, 10 years, and then they just wake up one day where like, I have an amazing idea. Right. And then they're like, boom, MVP, or let's go fundraise. And let's see if we can raise a seed round for you. The concept of, uh, and your relationship with the concept of identity has actually happened way back. I mean, you even uh, talked about um, your, your upbringing, your childhood in Connecticut, which I think is very fascinating. And I think every single experience, profession that you've had, paralegal, then your experience, the product and solutions started to kind of crystallize that more. So uh, my question then to you, so first of all, I think that's really, really cool because a lot of people... Uh, a lot of founders just haven't done that a lot of their ideas uh just kind of spark maybe one to two years out um before they decide to found their own company but for you why didn't you decide to um so it sounds like you know after several years working in product and solutions architect why didn't you decide to um try to start your own kind of uh company then and there like why did you choose to go to business school um and you also talked about that you also had the opportunity to incubate your idea in business school, which if people who are listening have never been to business school, a lot of business school programs have some sort of incubator or even like a tech idea competition at the end where you can actually kind of go through the process of thinking of an idea with colleagues um, and going through the process of of. Of whether or not this idea can be robust, um, and then if if you win, maybe you get some cash, or maybe you can actually go through an official incubator experience. So we'd love to kind of uh, hear a little bit more about that. But real quick, just why business school? Like, did you think that you didn't have, uh, you were lacking severely in the business strategic kind of area in your skill set uh, to launch your own company, or maybe idea of you executing on your um, building your own product at that point just wasn't like a a really short-term goal that you just want to do, and you kind of want to give it some time and maybe kind of go through school to help you develop new, new skills.
1: Yeah, so really it boils down to two things. One, COVID, and two, execution mm-hmm. risk. So, you know, I started kind of piecing these different, you know, observations and pieces of evidence and feedback, you know, as soon as late 2019, um, you know, you flash forward to the end of Q1 2020, and all hell breaks loose worldwide. And so I had to just kind of sit and, th- sit and think for a while about like what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I'd been in New York for 10 years. I was kind of at a point where I had a lot of kind of individual agency. And I knew that this issue around identity and at financial access was still largely unsolved. And with the pandemic, there is a huge amount of external kind of pressure to figure out what is the next step in digital banking. People are not going to be going to branches. People are going to, you know, diversify their financial lives across all sorts of apps and services. You know, web three and DeFi was becoming a thing, even though like eight out of 10 people were still not familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's all of these things kind of all brewing at once. And, you know, I kind of said to myself, okay, there's a lot of these things that are emerging that I can probably grab hold of, because they all probably play an important role in solving this problem. What's the right way to do this? And I kind of looked at like, what my skill set was and the resources that I had. And, you know, realized that I could try to do roll this on my own from like my kitchen table in Brooklyn. Or I could say, all right, this is going to cause a lot of economic instability. We don't know how long or how bad this pandemic is going to be. I should probably do this in an environment where I can get, you know, you know, five or 10x, you know, ROI on the time spent building on building it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think I could try to work alone from my kitchen table and, you know, rally resources and and team members that way. Or I could dive into like, I would say, arguably, is the world's best MBA program for fintech and run into all sorts of crazy people and crazy circumstances that would both help me fit the pieces I knew about together and let me understand the probably infinitely many pieces I still didn't understand. So despite the price tag associated with an MBA, it seemed like the best possible choice I could make given all the other you know uncertainty I had going on in my life and in and the, the macroeconomic climate at the time so I was like okay this is going to make sense if I can treat this as an incubator learn some stuff along the way around you know operations financial modeling and so on and so forth then I think this is going to come out with the with the intended effect so you, you know that was that was kind of everything that went into my decision making um you know it's it was a challenging time for everyone, for certain. I wasn't convinced it was the the um, best option at the time, but considering the volatility of everything else, I was certainly convinced it was the least worst option at the time.
0: If you had to go back, would you have gone back to business school?
1: Yeah, the, I don't regret that for a second. Absolutely worth it. Um, it was exactly it ended up being exactly the right thing for me at the right time.
0: Fantastic. So you went through business school and through the whole process, you tinkered and you crystallized your idea. And then how did you go from that to actually raising or, or raising your first round?
1: Yeah, so it was kind of a two-stepper. Um, you know, it wasn't kind of just a big, like, you, you know, it's, you didn't pop out of the nest fully formed. It was sort of this two-step process during the course of business school. So, you know, arrived in Philadelphia and the first year of B-School was all on Zoom. That's yeah. kind of how it was. Um, but it did give me a lot of free time to start like putting some stuff together and, you know, core architecture and go to market and a whole bunch of R&D. And things really picked up, though, in 2021. I had the, you know, I was very fortunate to meet uh, the team from Pair VC out in the Bay Area and take part in their MBA pitch competition. Pair at the time were investors in a ton of things. But one of them was Nova Credit, which is essentially a credit passport for immigrants. It allows people to interoperate foreign credit scores into the u s. or other countries. So, like very brilliant in that respect, um because you're kind of breaking down some data interoperability barriers there. so that was so that was kind of a serendipitous precondition because they at payer kind of understood the value of data interoperability in financial services. And kind of immediately saw what I was trying to stick together, mm-hmm. you know, by um, almost by brute force. And so <laughs> thankfully, they were the first ones to believe in what I was building and they jumped on. So we, you know, won the NBA pitch competition and also a spot in their summer accelerator. And that's where I would say things got really, really real. So, you know, I was out in San Francisco, summer of 2021. Building with a pair team, doing more, you know, research, R and D, networking, etc., and that's also where I met my founder, Alex, who was at Consensus for a while and then helped build an identity company in Europe called Sferity. So that was kind of the the first major milestone for Portable as a company. Um, funny, we were actually called Proof Fetch at the time, which, mm. hindsight being 2020, is a terrible name. Um, you couldn't imagine the number of times and the number of variations that was wrong (laughs) or in emails and whatever. Um, So that changed that summer for starters, among other things. But that was milestone one, is getting that first check from Pair and kind of that initial like nod that, hey, you're on to something, don't stop. So we kind of were heads down, uh, me and Alex, through the rest of 2021, doing more validation, more building. And it was really in 2022 when things Stuck for us, you know, we saw the emergence of some new, you know, identity standards, encryption standards. We started working with the World Wide web consortium and we saw the pieces start to come together. And that's when we started to say, Hey, this is real. We have a little bit of money. Let's start to build a team, you know, in any way we can, and let's put a plan together to raise, you know, two issues of money and see, turn this from a science experiment to a business. And so that's when the real fundraising in earnest started happening. And so that's when things radically transformed. You know, we, you know, we looked at our roadmap, looked at the kind of problem space, really looked at, okay, this is not just about like, you know, industry terms like KYC or AML. Anytime an ide- a piece of identity information changes hands is almost like a transaction. And we realized almost with this Stripe-like mindset This could be a big, 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 big opportunity, you know, somewhere on the order of, you know, you know, many billions of dollars of total addressable market. And so kind of with that refreshed perspective, we just went out and swung for the fences. And, you know, we were very, very fortunate to um, meet Harlem Capital, who immediately saw the promise in our vision for kind of a Web 2.5 identity, if you will, you know, something that works as well to open up an account at Chime or Wells Fargo as it is to, you know, associate, you know, some identity information with, you know, MetaMask or Coinbase or something like that. And, you know, shout out to the Harlem capital team because they were so thorough and so fast in their process. Um, You know, I feel very privileged to be part of their portfolio now, but they run a great process um, and just kudos to them for being very, very transparent and very, very, thoughtful through that entire process. But they were the ones who really said, hey, these guys at Portable are onto something. We're going to make a big bet on them. And the whole, you know, investor community should listen. Mm -hmm. And that for us is what anchored the round. And, you know, after that, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, well, I'll describe it another way. After they came into the round, you know, it was the conversations we had with, Bessemer and six-man ventures and dorm room fund were were delightfully quick and straight, straight <laughs> forward um and so by the time you know graduation rolled around you know we had filled out our round um we actually oversubscribed twice but we said okay two and a half is enough um and then it was full steam ahead
0: that's amazing so um two questions your uh, I believe you said his name was Alex, your co-founder. W- w- did he have a technical background or was his background similar to more business oriented?
1: Or Alex is super technical. So super was, technical. Yeah. He was an engineer at Consensus for some years um, after making the switch, ironically enough, out of financial services. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was actually the CTO of that identity company in Europe for a little over three years. There he had built out the teams, the tech stack had worked with different types of government agencies and NGOs and research organizations before around different types of identity standards and encryption standards and things like that. So he was both super seasoned and like deeply, deeply familiar with Mm -hmm. all the like in the weeds bits of what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, He also saw the massive opportunity to get this right strictly for financial services. Granted identity is kind of a problem anywhere you have to log in anywhere, but financial services has a unique combination of challenges that he was as excited by as I was over my last 10 years of dealing with it so it was it was a extraordinary match at the time and very very uh uh grateful to have him uh, by my side
0: for sure yeah i just want to quickly address his background because talking to founders or even if you're listening you're in tech community you know how important it is to have at least one of the founders to have a technical background so it sounded like he was a big kind of missing piece for you. And by partnering together, then you're able to really accelerate and raise your official round. Number two, you hear uh or well, we hear constantly of horror stories with VCs. So it sounded like from your experience uh finding pair and finding the the subsequent um VC that really kind of sparked or was the catalyst for your official round, it sounded really easy that the connections were made. So like how how much behind the scenes did you do a lot of like cold outreach? Um, you know, uh or were there any other like VCs that you were also considering as a plan B, plan C before you went with these? Just quickly wanted to kind of hear your experience here.
1: Yeah. So two kind of factoids uh, I'll draw your attention to that I think are unique to our situation and not in the norm. Well, one's probably in the norm and then one is not in the norm. The first one, which is in the norm, is, oh, we just got nose left, right, and center. It was just like, just a rain, like rainstorm of nose across the board, <laughs> not for like lack of founder problem fit or lack of um, like coherence of product vision or any or you know business model or anything like that. But I think the one thing I would say the most, the common denominator of a lot of the no's is that this is at some level, or one can argue this is frontier tech. Like this is a whole different way of doing something that is like vastly different from ways of, that this kind of stuff has been done for. Um, It's unproven. It is like straight up unproven. And I will, you know, I am totally comfortable saying that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I understand where the investors are coming from, but particularly the ones who said no, like, hey, we want to see more proof. We want to see traction. We want to see how you develop. You want to, we want to see if you can, you know, avoid any kind of like security or regulatory risks you might have. And all of those are like perfectly legitimate um, reasons to, to pass. Um, I will say that, you know, from the nose that we got, uh, I'm very grateful to have very good, you know, communications relationships with a lot of those past investors. You know, they're very smart and attentive people who are deeply interested in the intersection of identity and finance, Mm -hmm. but, um, and they're just good people. Like, these are all people I go like have coffee with or get a beer with, but I think it's just was too uncertain for them. And I understand Mm -hmm. that. Um, so that's, that happens to a lot of founders working on hard problems and new takes on hard problems. I think the atypical thing about our process though, is I would say over eight and 10 of our investor connections, both the yeses and the nos were inbound, not outbound. I actually, to be perfectly honest, I did very little outbound. There are a couple like key funds that i super wanted um to have on the bench and have early support but i would say a lot of it was was inbound and i think it's partially driven by identity is a hot topic digital finance is has been a hot topic for years um the pandemic has colored certain types of investment priorities and has you know shined a spotlight on new types of investment theses um And I think also just like the rise of all things Web3 is also informed new investment theses as well. So it's kind of, again, a right place, right time thing where a lot of people come knocking and not everyone's the right fit, but we are extremely grateful to have, you know, had the outcomes we have. Very cool.
0: So let's talk about portable. So for the average person that's listening right now, in the simplest way, like if you can maybe uh, reiterate some of the key points, like what does your product do? Do you... Are you guys working on a web app? Is it a mobile app? Um, how much does it cost for for the user? Is it free to sign up?
1: Yeah, so great question. And you know, our evolution will be in two phases. But you know, we're launching this month. Stay tuned, and it will be drop dead simple. You know, everyone, or I'd say most people out there, are familiar with things like login with Google, login with Facebook, mm-hmm. all of these like social sign in or single sign in. Tools that we have that have been around now for about 10 to 15 years, people love them. Like it's simple, it's easy, set it and forget it. You know that they work. But that kind of a thing doesn't exist in financial services for a lot of reasons due to, you know, identity, privacy, regulation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But that's our first problem that we're solving. We have built SSO for financial services. So that is kind of our breakthrough first case that we'll be launching. And if you're an average consumer listening, we want to make it as dropped dead simple for you to say, "Hey, I have a app or service I really like. If they've partnered with Portable, I want to essentially back up my secure information to, you know, Portable's like cloud wallet. It's my wallet. You know, no one else can touch it, and you know, a Portable can't even look at it. And I want to be able to use that to have a two-click login to other apps and services that I like. So in effect, like I'm a Chase customer." If I said, okay, back up my data with portable, great. And then I can walk over to another app, another service provider on the web or on mobile. And instead of spending the five or 10 minutes to do a confusing process, to throw data into a black hole to get you know, an account, I can tap the register with portable button, consent to share a certain number of data points in my account setup. Mm. But for the average person uh, listening out there, we want to give you two-touch financial access in 15 seconds. And the assurance is that your data um, about yourself is secure and backed up and truly yours. That's what we're going to market with, SSO for financial services. Later this year, it gets more interesting because we will have an app. And that essentially will work almost like an Apple wallet, but for your identity information. Mm -hmm. So that means I can open my portable app, understand where my data is being shared and disclosed i can centrally update things so if i move or if i have a new driver's license i can do that in the app and then sync it with one or many accounts that i might have synced with portable and you know that's going to be the real like significant thing for us Mm -hmm. not just because it makes like compliance and back office things simpler for financial institutions but it now gives people this kind of central unified control Um, over their data privacy, their data security, and kind of their data disclosures across their apps. I think to put it in in real terms, you know, an example I like talking about is when I moved to Philadelphia. You know, I've been in New York for a long time. And then when I moved to Philly, I was like, oh, wait, I have to update like my address and a bunch of other stuff across like 18 different apps. And like, I didn't do it all at once. I forgot about some, then I get like, Emails and paper mail saying, Are you still here? We can't find you. And so, like, all sorts of other onerous stuff. And so, that was, you know, I'm sure lots of people out there have gone through that thing or much worse. So, you know, from our perspective, once we release the app, you know, our goal for consumers is update ones, publish everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, I should be able to update my address, you know, verify it in the app and say, Hey, 13 out of your 18 accounts, you know, um, would like this update. Do you disclose it? Yes. And then you're done and so we've removed you know 12 out of 13 of the effort it takes to keep stuff straightened out and secure and safe
0: are you looking long term to uh expand portables application beyond fintech or is it very much like you want to make it the go-to app uh for identity for this purpose within any sort of like related fintech
1: it's it's a really good question and i get this quite a lot mm-hmm. um so i'll start by saying there is there are an absolute boatload of very smart, very talented teams, building different types of identity solutions, both on general basis and in FinTech specifically. Um, and also we have like all of these pre-existing ones like Stitch and Auth0 for like that type of like login, authentication, um, rights management type stuff. It's a huge, huge universe. Um, you know, we could spend hours and multiple episodes going through it all. Um, it might excite some people, it might put a lot of people to sleep. <laughs> Results may vary. But because of that, there's a you know, we we realize that the identity problem in finance is both extremely large, you know, on the order of maybe $10 billion, and highly specific and has a lot of like unique, you know, quirks to it. Um, and we like those quirks, and there's a lot of quirks to iron out. And so that's everything from making sure that. You know, self-owned, self-owned, not cell phone, self-owned data, you know, plays nice with things like the Bank Secrecy Act, Mm -hmm. that our approach to allow people to have cell phone data is commensurate with the spirit and the letter of Dodd-Frank section 1033, which, you know, kind of advocates for standard ways of dealing with identity in financial institutions and allowing people to take their data with them, which Mm -hmm. we love. So all of these little tiny things have these huge ramifications, which is why the the fintech identity space is huge and more than enough for us to play in, at least in any foreseeable future. And it gets even more complicated when you realize that, you know, we are, you know, part of what we do by default is allow people to bridge web two and web three. So I have a bunch of data about myself that I own and I know where it's being shared. I might be sharing a bunch of stuff with like chase or with, You know, Betterment or something, but I'm also sharing, you know, encrypted or what are called zero knowledge versions of that data with like MetaMask or some like you know DeFi wallet I have or some decentralized application. And so, you know, between all the pre-existing complexities of Web2, plus all of the you know still emerging nuances of Web3, we're we're already biting off a pretty big chunk if you ask Mm -hmm. me. But that's You know, that's really significant for us. And there's no more important place to get identity right than personal finance, whether you're all in on crypto or whether you, you know, bank with your community bank and whether you're one of the 150 plus million Americans who do something in between those two things. Mm
0: -hmm. How does the average user know that their data with you is truly secure?
1: Sure. So it's a combination of what we're like actively doing on the back end that you know i don't think the average person will will may or may not be interested by but the real important thing is how that manifests in the day-to-day user experience you know telling them you know, these things were last shared these things were last backed up you know these you know yay many data points you know are secure because of these types of processes and procedures it is a really delicate balancing act you know i think an example that comes to mind is like one password know they do an extraordinary job of giving you these like small little design features interaction patterns engagement emails and things around hey your data is really secure you know day to day hey you're all good these things are stored these things are last saved at this point in time and then if you go look at their documentation their website it's super clear and super confidence building and that's important for us because there's one thing to store passwords which are like the traditional gateways to accounts there's another thing to store a bunch of PII. And that whole bundle of information is kind of your passport to your different financial services. And so for us, it all comes down to trust. Mm-hmm. So, what trust can we bake in and make natively understandable in our apps, in the way we integrate with financial service providers and partners? You know, what can we do in terms of marketing to build that trust? And the trust has to go two ways. You know, so how can we ensure that our customers and our partners trust what we're doing on their behalf to give them these these new capability sets? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that the joining experience, using your portable ID to join an app or join a service is smooth and simple and transparent and, frankly, earnest so that you can get from, you know, point A to point Z in, you know, 15 seconds without worrying too much about, you know, Where's my information going? What's being disclosed? Who has access to it? Am I going to get weird marketing emails? Stuff like that.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for sharing. Uh, real quick, we'd love to kind of take a look um, and talk about things from more of a recruiting perspective. So to date, how big is your team right now?
1: Yeah, so great question. We are six people right now. Everyone's and, full-time? Everyone's full-time. We are, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's been a really interesting um past couple of months like i said at the beginning of today's chat we've been extraordinarily capable with doing a lot with not a whole lot um so yeah there's there's me and alex um we have ed who's leading design um he was previously like, the art director at you know, um us mobile and helped do some p2p payment stuff so he's he's phenomenal he's he's done a great job breathing kind of life and character into the brand And then the rest of the team is made up of um, some other engineers focusing on mobile and DevOps and platform.
0: What has been like the most successful channel for you to utilize when it comes to recruiting like a small, a small team in this market?
1: Yeah. So I love this one because the the answer is deceptively simple. Um, You know, we have our jobs posted on AngelList. Like it's, it's not a particularly like fancy or esoteric answer. Um, Yeah. So our jobs are posted on AngelList. They're cross-listed on our website. Uh, We've used a few job boards, Cambrian FinTech um, for one. This Week in FinTech has another. Um, But that alone has been truly phenomenal. We are approaching the 200 application mark already. And we've only had, you know, two or three positions open at any given point in time. So, you know, we you know, we feel very fortunate to be getting the interest that we're getting.
0: What are your thoughts in terms of like recruiting in this market? So what I mean by that is, first of all, we're post 2020, now going to market um, uncertainty moving forward. And to add to that, I think a lot of founders of fast growing early stage companies, what we're seeing specifically is a lot of companies out there are also doing their best to capitalize on this unexpected tailwind from recruiting, meaning uh, that they don't have to compete as hard and as much uh, against the bigger companies and even big techs that have slowed down significantly. So what are you seeing on the market? Um, and are you, it sounds like you're also very intentional with hiring, you obviously raise the round, you have to be cognizant of your of your burn and runway, your capital consumption overall. Um, and it sounds like overall you're very intentional, but like just what are your thoughts on the recruiting landscape right now for a company your size and how are you able to, it sounds like AngelList and other boards, you know, are doing, and I'm sure referrals, are fantastic options to utilize. Um, Are these options you think you're going to continue using or things might change moving forward?
1: So I'll try to do that one back to front. So we'll definitely continue with some of the channels we're using right now. I think as we start expanding and looking to fill other types of positions, say uh, operations or customer success, excuse me, or marketing, we'll lean on what we have and certainly lean on Excuse me. Uh, our investors, for instance, um, as well as some of the communities we take part in. So you know, we are in on deck. We're in Finovation. Um, you know, if I if I showed you my like Slack left hand rail, it's like a Christmas tree of icons. And so those are all like phenomenal, phenomenal communities. Not just for mentorship and advice and brainstorming um, and kind of like the latest and greatest about what's happening in the industry. It's also an incredible source. For to put job postings, send out general inquiries, things like that. So I think as we start looking for um, non-engineering positions, the relative importance of those kind of non-direct channels will almost certainly increase. Coming back to the first part of your question, yeah, trends and things in a, in a post or intra-pandemic world. Um, again, it's it's been colored by a lot of economic uncertainty I think one of the things I've seen most often is people like really super talented people um, applying because they've had offers rescinded, which is a huge bummer. <laughs> like, um, but, you know, everyone at some level or another, almost everyone has been like pulling back the drawbridge, tightening the purse strings, you know, pick your metaphor. Um, and it, you know, I would say, you know, in the past, let's see, it's August 11th, in August alone, I've probably met three people whose offers have been rescinded and they've gone back out on the market. So like non-trivial. Um, that's probably the biggest interesting trend I've seen. Um, I think the other one that I've seen, which is delightful from my perspective, is you know multi-time technical founders looking to join an early stage team again so you know those are those are always exciting applications to get as well Mm.
0: why aside from your product and your mission and identity why should somebody apply to portable uh is there anything that you're doing you feel something special in terms of your culture do you guys have an x factor um if you can maybe shed a little more color on
1: that that'd be great yeah i love this question um and i'm going to kind of stick with my habit of answering in two parts so the first part is more, um, I would guess, administrative in a way. So that means, you know, we've raised some money. We obviously need to be very smart with our money. But it also means that, you know, we're recruiting a handful of people to do something really, really, really hard. And as such, you know, I think there's kind of a, a fundamental dignity we recognized when understanding How do we compensate people? How do we assemble benefits packages? How can we be as transparent as possible when we create offers? Um, And so what that means in practice is that, you know, despite us being quite small and quite nascent, we try and meet people as close to market as we can. We offer kind of fair and transparent combinations of cash and equity. We have kind of a company policy where we actually offer, when we put out offers, we actually offer. Three versions of the offer, like a low cash, high equity, a medium, medium, and a high cash, low equity. And we're like, here's the trade offs. Here's how it works. We've built a calculator for you to show you how these trade offs work in different exit scenarios and different fundraising scenarios and things like that. Because this is how we roll. If our entire company is built on building mutual trust, we have to make sure that that's manifested as clearly and as delightfully as possible in our recruiting processes and in our offer processes. So that means being very transparent with the offers and kind of the mechanics of the offers, as well as just kind of not just doing table stakes, but being conscientious in terms of the other benefits as well. So health, dental, vision, 401k with matching, no probationary period, you know, a work from home stipend, like very pretty sizable um, familial leave, um, parental leave, stuff like that. So it's you know, just because we're a small scrappy startup doesn't mean we have to have anemic benefits. That's not how we want to roll. And so we've definitely worked that into our budgeting exercises and our runway exercises. And I think, at least optimistically, it's it's bearing fruit in the type the type and the caliber of applicant we're getting in our hiring mm-hmm. funnels. I
0: think mean, that's great. I think um in then- an I guess time right now where people are just typically a lot more risk averse or just a lot more cautious joining smaller companies. It's more important than ever for small teams to establish that trust as best as they can be transparent as possible and make an effort with things like benefits, which are obviously a top three reason why people would even obviously look for a new job in the first place. So it sounds uh, great and um, it's, it's fantastic. And I think it, it should certainly be a role model for other founders who are listening. Who are in similar situations do the same. Are you remote? Are you hybrid? Are you in an office? What's your take on that?
1: Sure. So we're all remote um, and I'll offer some color around that. Uh, As it pertains to your question about the X factor, which I do want to address, but I also want to frame it in terms of what our values are and why our values are what they are. So first about the being remote thing, uh, I'm in Philly, we have someone in New York, we have someone in DC we have someone in portugal and two people in london so we're kind of spread out a little bit um it is actually pretty nice to be totally honest i think if you think about what the future of work might look like um it's going to naturally be a combination of synchronous and asynchronous work because when your employees are engaged with the problem but happy and able to take care of themselves and not have kind of an impermeable membrane between work and life, but allow everyone to blend it, to maximize both for themselves. That's when you get the best contributions and the, the highest degree of trust and the most creative approaches to problem solving. And that's something that's really important to us now is six people. And that's going to be something that's, you know, as important to us as when we hit 10 people, 20 people, so on and so forth. There will probably be a future in which case, in which we have some hubs. but beyond that it's you know we'll see what happens um so that's kind of what it what the story is about you know why we're remote how we make it work and it comes comes down to our values which i would say contribute to our x factor um you know you could see in our job descriptions and elsewhere that we have four values it's trust curiosity empathy and craft and they all kind of interlink in a lot of different ways and so you know from our perspective you know, empathy and craft stem from curiosity. And trust is the output of all three of those. You know, we are in some level B2B to C, and we will be more B2C when we roll out an app. We are dealing with the most sense one of the most sensitive parts of people's financial lives, their personal data. And as a result, you know, it's our you know day-to-day goal to really truly understand it, how people feel about data rights, data privacy, data sharing, and also understanding from the financial institution's perspective, okay, what really worries you about security? What really worries you about account takeover and fraud? What worries you about you know, the fact that you might lose six and 10 when you're trying to enroll new customers? Stuff like that. Being truly, truly curious about what keeps them up at night and, and reflecting that you know, empathetically. So understanding really where they're coming from, feeling it, and then bringing that back into the code we're shipping, the products we're building, you know, our, you know, UX and design, stuff like that. Cause we have to, at the end of the day, we are building high trust. We are building things that need to be trustable by everyday people. And so that's kind of the beginning and the end for us, you know, be curious, be empathetic, manifest it in your craft, you do that, you can you can get trust on the other end. I think it's really great that your values just
0: transpire not only through your recruiting mindset, your culture, but also even your product, right? Having trust in fintech is super, super important. And it's really great how you apply that just downstream to everything about business. I know we're coming close on time here, but just have a couple more questions I would love to ask you. So as a CEO, as a founder right now, uh Nate, what does your day to day look like? And <laughs> what what are some things that you really love about being a founder? And what are some things that are just maybe really challenging for you?
1: Yeah. So a friend of mine recently called me the C E O or Chief Everything Else Officer. And that's <laughs> still absolutely true. Um it's it's user research, it's finance and admin, it's legal, it's business development, it's partnerships, it's product. Um it's, it's it's all of those things. Um, and sometimes it's a bit of a grab bag, um, depending on kind of what's going on, you know, inside or outside of my control. I think one of the things that I'm very excited to do much more of as we kind of enter the market is not just stuff like this where we, I get to go tell the story and kind of, you know, be a cheerleader for the company. But uh, I'm really excited to share what we're doing in reference to teaching people stuff. Um, You know, my late grandmother was like, you know, very, she picked herself up off her bootstraps. I'll say that with an asterisk, because I think there's a lot of like complexities around the bootstrap narrative and some of it is harmful and some of it is helpful. Um, She immigrated from Puerto Rico and like her big thing was education. Like get the best education you can to try and set, you know, set you know a good good life for yourself and be able to do well for others so that kind of like importance on education always stuck with me it's an indelible part of me and i bring that to how i'm how i lead and so what i mean by that is you know where, what other opportunities can i have as the ceo to go out and share what we're doing in a way that says hey there's some new stuff happening in in identity there's some potentially transformative stuff that we can do for your business. There's some potentially transformative stuff that we can do for the well-being of, you know, the everyday person with, you know, their, the, with their own individual financial lives, with all of the complexity that, you know, sits in those, Hey, we want to share what we're doing. We want to teach you why this is significant and we want to have connect with you and have as big of an impact as we can. So I think that's one of the things that kind of motivates me on a day-to-day basis. I love product management. I love doing the sales and partnership stuff. Um, I think partnerships for us are going to be instrumental. It's all about distribution because you can embed identity anywhere, just like you can embed other fintech things anywhere. But at the end of the day, like if I can go out and share the story and educate why this is the this is the future of identity, um, I love that. You know, I'll do that any chance I can get. That's wonderful.
0: Um, last but not least, if there is people who are listening right now who are also looking to follow in your footsteps, perhaps whether it's MBA or, or more importantly, you know, one day building something of their own, what is perhaps a, a big advice that you would like to share or maybe a lesson learned um, that you can share with the
1: audience? Yeah, I think one, the first lesson that comes to mind is... A similar piece of feedback I shared in a mini interview on the Wharton FinTech podcast. Um, two other student founders and I kind of gave you know our impressions and hot takes of our MBA experience and our own founders' journeys. And you know, you know, Wharton probably <laughs> might not like me saying this, but I think the first kind of very clear piece of advice is that you certainly do not have to go get an MBA to be a founder if you wanna start a business, genuinely consider not doing an MBA first before, re- before determining that you should do an MBA. Like sort of in the way that I determined, like I could do it other ways, but the most optimal way, given my like skill set and resources is to do one. Um, there's a lot of pathways to get something started without having to go back to school. And I would say the modal founder doesn't have to go back to school to do it. Um, there's a lot of time and you know opportunity cost to going to school. You know it's not for everyone, so that's my first piece of advice. Mm-hmm. If you can do it without going back, probably do that. Um, sorry, Wharton. My second piece of advice is specifically for founders of remote teams, and that goes back to something that I think I mentioned in our first couple of minutes is overall the founder journey can be really lonely. If you're a founder of an all-remote team, it can be really lonely, and you should be prepared for that. Um, find good mentors. Find you know people who you want to emulate, whether it's for their, you know, ability to do go- to market, whether it's their it's ability to do this, that or the other, whether it's because, you know they've crafted a specific trajectory for their company that you would love to emulate. So find mentors who are maybe two or three funding rounds ahead of you and pick their brains, you know, develop good relationships. That's a key thing there. Um, and then the second thing is build a community around you know like-minded folks who really care about the problem. So, you know, that's why we're in a bunch of different Slack groups and a bunch of other communities. It's good for the company, it's good business, but, you know, it's a good way to build communities. You know, I spend, you know, yay many hours of, of my day working from my home office. You know, it's me, my fiance, and two cats. Sure, that's going to feel lonely sometimes <laughs> um, when you don't have an office to go to and you may have like grown up going to an office. So figure out other ways to build those communities, figure out other ways to build those support networks,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and figure out great ways to create lasting relationships with your, your team members. Mm-hmm. Again, we're only six people, but... You know, we do some async work, but synchronous work is very important to us. We'll all get on Zoom and jam on stuff for hours at a time. And in fact, next month we'll be having our very first uh, team get together in person. Cherish those, make those deliberate, um, because those people tend to underestimate the impact of those. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say for founders, as soon as you have the resources to do it, Mm -hmm. the conditions to do it, Mm -hmm. do those things, even if you are remote. Thank you for sharing that.
0: And speaking of loneliness, Nate, I can empathize because it's also me, my wife, and two cats as well. <laughs> but uh look, at the end of the day, I just want to thank you again. If, if people you know resonate with this talk, they resonate with you, um, or maybe they're excited about possibly joining a team like yours in the future that are really making waves in the identity
1: DeFi space, where can they find you? Sure, so I'm on, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter. I don't tweet a whole lot, but I should probably change that. Um, I'm going to start writing on Medium. There are just so many things that, you know, I want to say and that Portable wants to share with the world about how we play inside the customer lifecycle or the data risk lifecycle. Tons of stuff there. So look for more content coming out soon. But, you know, if you want to hit me up, find me on Twitter, find me on LinkedIn. my contact information is on LinkedIn as well. So, you know, if you're out there and you're interested in what we're building, if you're interested in giving us, you know, trying us out, learning more, you know, feel free to reach out, you know, to me directly or hello at getportable.com. Awesome.
0: Definitely reach out to him uh if, if you wanna. Uh, get in touch with Nate or, or fascinated about the journey of Portable. But Nate, thank you again. I just want to thank your time for spending time of your busy day as a CEO of a fast growing company to just share your experience and being real um, and also building a company that not only has values like empathy and craft and trust. Um, and I think curiosity was the last one, um, but one that's actually living it and, and executing on that too from how you're recruiting how you're creating a great culture to even the product that you're building. And there will certainly be, hopefully, other opportunities in the future where we can talk a lot more about DeFi, Web3, Identity, as an hour can only scratch the surface of all that. But I've personally found um, your experience very insightful and how you're just even able to navigate from all the way doing a degree in linguistics to now running a company in web three identity. So I think it's fascinating. And I hope that a lot of people who are listening are able to really take away a lot of exciting, insightful nuggets that you're able to share. Uh, Really really exciting to see where you and the team go. Uh, Really exciting to also see the evolution of your product continue to expand and hopefully be a leader in its space. So we'll be rooting for you uh, and we'll definitely be looking out for exciting announcements from you and Portable moving forward.
1: Preston, thank you so much for the past hour. This was a, this was a delight um, way to keep me on my feet throughout. I appreciate that. Um, But yeah, so like I mentioned, you know, we're launching this month. Stay tuned for some more PR, some more interesting stuff on our website. And, you know, for those listening out there, uh, if you're at Money 2020 in Las Vegas in October, come find me. I'll be doing another interview with FinTech Times to share more of our progress and what we've done in the market so far So until then, thanks for listening, all of you out there. Preston, thank you so much for the past hour. This was a joy. Thanks very much, everyone, and take care.
0: Awesome, Nate. Thank you so much, and we'll keep in touch. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe for other great stories that are coming up. If you need any help with hiring, know of anyone who's looking for a job, or would like to be a guest on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at www.kickstartfinder.com. Really, really appreciate it and we'll see you on the next one.